whereas philosophy is certainly not self-expression. And philosophy, of course, is argument. Uh, and you can say, well, is the conclusion true or is the argument valid? Welcome to Five Questions, where we don't ask if the conclusion's true or the argument valid, but what they say about you. I'm your host, Kieran Setia. In each episode, I ask a philosopher five questions about themselves. There are two ground rules. One is that follow-up questions are allowed. The other is that the question I'm about to ask doesn't count as one of the five. So could you introduce yourself, tell us a bit about who you are and what kind of philosophical work you do? Sure, yeah. I'm David Christensen, and uh, I guess I originally thought of myself as a philosopher of science, but I've since figured out that what I was really interested in all along was epistemology. So I was interested in questions like, uh, how can we choose between empirically equivalent theories? But it turns out to be pretty close to the question that often gets asked in discussions of skepticism, where we ask, you know, how do I choose between the real-world theory and the brain and bat theory or the dreaming theory. Or I was interested in the questions like, what makes a bit of evidence confirm a hypothesis? But that's really just the question of what makes any bit of evidence support any belief. And uh, some of the answers that appealed to me saw beliefs and hypotheses as matters of degree, which were governed by the laws of probability. And for whatever sociological reasons back then, thinking about beliefs in that way was done by philosophers of science, not really by epistemologists. And now, fortunately, we have this label, formal epistemology, for that sort of approach. And I think uh, Brandon Feitelson deserves a lot of credit for helping to shape the field in that way. So now I'm an epistemologist. I've worked a little bit on skepticism. I've worked a lot on what formal constraints there might be on rational belief, both for categorical beliefs and also for degrees of belief. And then for the last 15 years or so, I've been working first on the epistemology of disagreement and then more generally on what the rational response is when you get evidence that you're thinking about some matter uh, might be unreliable. Well, David, it's great to have you here. And it's... Uh, I think it'll be interesting to talk to you about some of the questions that bear on the relationship between non-rational, non-cognitive aspects of psychology and philosophy. And that's true of the first question. So the inspiration for the podcast is Iris Murdoch, who begins each episode telling us that philosophy is not self-expression, but who also wrote, quote, to do philosophy is to explore one's temperament, and yet at the same time to attempt to discover the truth. So does your temperament influence your philosophical work? And if so, how? Yeah, I, I don't know whether doing philosophy involves exploring my temperament exactly any more than, you know, cooking or hanging out with friends or most of the other things I do does. But I'm sure my temperament influences the way I do philosophy or most anything else. In philosophy, I think... I'm probably influenced by the fact that I'm naturally a pretty slow and patient person. I like to take little steps and I, I really want to get the details right. And I think that might be related to the fact that I find it hard to think confidently at the level of big picture isms and uh, 
very general principles. I'm pretty tied to, to uh, starting with judgments about particular cases and then maybe trying to work out at least somewhat general ways of explaining or systematizing those judgments. So c- could you give an example of sort of a, a kind of specific issue that you would start with and how that would contrast with approaches to epistemology that begin with with the isms? Yeah, okay. So um, here's a couple of sort of general principles that, that sound really good in the abstract, but then when I think about them and think about particular examples, I can't buy them anymore. So one is uh, that the beliefs of an ideally rational agent should be logically consistent. So that's if we're thinking about beliefs in, in an all or nothing sense. It sort of makes sense that, you know, an ideally rational agent's beliefs should all hang together in this way. But then when I think about particular examples, such as the preface paradox kind of examples, it seems to me that you think of a person who's, you know, written a book and in history and uh, is very aware of the possibility of error, even if she's written the book as carefully and responsibly as anyone can. And so she comes to believe that there's an er- at least one error in her book. And that there's not a logically consistent set of beliefs, but it seems to me like that has to be the rational reaction to that situation. So despite the uh, sort of the abstract appeal of the principle, I'm very willing to toss it out in the face of conflict with uh, what I think about particular examples. Another picture is the one that I've, I used to totally believe in, which is the, this Bayesian picture on which maximally rational beliefs obey the rules of probability. And uh, it comes with that picture that uh, maximally rational agents would uh, be certain of all the logical theorems. And people have been worried about that for a while. That didn't bother me too much because I sort of thought, well, uh, given a certain degree of idealization, uh, that's perfectly fine. But then thinking about examples uh, involving higher order evidence, evidence that an agent might get that her thinking had been unreliable, convinced me that the general picture couldn't be right. So despite the beauty of the probability calculus and the nice way it, it sort of constrains degrees of belief, I don't anymore think that uh, the maximally rational response to any situation includes uh, degrees of belief that obey the probability rules. You began this description of your temperament by talking about your aversion to grand theory. I mean, is, is there a connection with that, that sort of grand theories, the sort of bigger and more overarching and ambitious the theory, the greater the risk that somewhere or other it's going to be wrong and so one just shouldn't be confident of that kind of ambitious view? Is there a sort of kind of background suspicion of grand theories that's connected with this, the conception of rationality you defend? Oh, that's interesting. I, I had not thought of it in that way at all. I guess uh, if you did have a grand theory which had many, many different parts to it, then the picture that I was talking about would say that you should, even if you were confident in each part, uh, maybe you shouldn't be confident in the whole grand theory. But the, the thing I was thinking about more in terms of temperament was trusting my judgments on details and small things and concrete cases more than I trust my inclinations when 
I think about an abstract principle, like the abstract principle that all of one's beliefs should be should form a logically consistent set. You also mentioned patience, which strikes me as being one of the cardinal and most sort of difficult virtues for a philosopher to have. So I I'm fully behind that. I have a follow up to this, which is in fact question two, which is. Is there a trait that you wish you had more of as a philosopher? Yeah, there. Am I allowed to uh, to give you more than one? Oh yeah, sure. Give us the the full menu of <laughs> the many traits you wish you had more of as a philosopher. Sure. I don't know about the whole menu, but uh, maybe I can do three. Sure. One thing I really do wish I was better at was being able to to see big, complicated pictures to sort of keep a, a lot of balls in the air at once and see how they relate to one another. Um, and I, I know talking to other people, you know, let's say uh, my buddy who does Kant, they can have these enormous, really complicated pictures clearly in front of their minds. And I really, I can't actually. And I wish I could be better at that. Another one is I wish I was better at reading and understanding uh, formal work. So a bunch of the work I've done has been on uh, what's called formal epistemology, uh, including stuff involving arguments for why your degrees of belief should be probabilistically consistent, things like that, rules for updating your beliefs. And a lot of the work in that is very mathematical. And uh, I can read some of it, but some of it I just... I really can't read. I'm just not good enough at the math to do that. And so it's frustrating to me. So those are two, those are two ways that I sort of I run up against my own purely intellectual limitations. I can just see, I can feel my brain not being able to do what I want it to do. And so those are two, two traits that I wish I had more of being able to see the, you know, big complicated pictures clearly and being better able to do sort of mathematically technical work and understand it when other people do it. I think the other trait I wish I had more of that comes to mind is um, it's more of an affective trait rather than a purely intellectual one. I wish I enjoyed reading philosophy more because mostly I kind of hate it. Uh-huh. <laughs> It sort of feels to me like eating sand. So, you know, when I pick up an article, uh, the first thing I do is to check the back page to see how many pages I'm going to have to slog through. Yeah. And I, I know I, I hear my friends and people on Facebook saying things like, oh, I can't wait to read this new paper, you know, or even a book. And I just, you know, I, I've probably said that kind of thing sometimes, but I was probably lying. <laughs> Uh, and I really love talking about philosophy and thinking about philosophy, especially talking about philosophy with other people. And sometimes I enjoy writing philosophy, uh, but I really have to force myself to read. And I think, I guess, a lot of that comes from a certain sort of mental laziness. I mean, I'm patient, but there's a, kind of a limitation to the uh, energy that I have. I mean, do you blame that on 
the writing or is it just even if philosophers were better writers than they notoriously are do you think you would still find it as taxing to read philosophy just because of the intellectual effort i wish i could blame it on the writing <laughs> but uh i don't i think uh you know i think it really is the intellectual effort of of going slowly enough through the paper that i that i understand each bit because i'm i'm not very good at um sort of reading through a paper and uh, getting past parts without completely understanding them and then you know getting to the next part and sort of getting a bigger holistic picture i sort of as i'm reading if i don't get one bit i sort of have to stay there until i really do before i move on and uh it's just, you know, it's a lot of work and I don't like working, I guess. I have one last follow-up, which I can't resist asking about the difficulty of technical work, formal work. Do you have advice for people who are interested in epistemology, formal epistemology, but also are not technically gifted or strategies for working around that kind of limitation? That's a good question. I guess... I haven't been totally successful in uh, working around my limitation. I mean, I I just try very hard to read stuff thoroughly, and sometimes I can ask people to help me when I don't get something, but there isn't always somebody to ask. I do have advice for people about writing in formal epistemology, and that is that uh, a lot of people write formal epistemology in a way that's needlessly formal, that, uh, you know, will use variables when a name would do, or use uh, three time indices when they're actually not necessary. And it makes, you know, the formulas on the page bristle with subscripts and superscripts. And I think the people who are really good at formal epistemology or formal stuff in general don't understand how difficult this makes it for somebody who's more like me, to read this stuff. So when I've written for, on formal stuff, I try very hard to minimize the gratuitous uh, formalism. Well, thank you, David. I think it's true that you succeed. I really love reading your work, partly for that reason, that you are a formal epistemologist, but your writing is actually very accessible. And, and this connects also, I think, with starting with case studies, that the hook is often very gripping and sort of of real life significance. And I think this does cue up question three, which I'm excited to ask an epistemologist who works on disagreement and self-doubt, which is, do you really believe your philosophical views? Okay, yeah, um, that's a particularly hard or maybe a particularly appropriate question for me. Um, so to explain that, uh, for a while, I've been defending what's called a conciliatory approach to epistemology of disagreement. And so conciliationism, the view I've been defending, says roughly that disagreement of other people can make it irrational for you to maintain your beliefs. In particular, this can happen when the other people, let's say, have thought about the same evidence and arguments as you've thought about and they're just as smart as you are, just as skilled at the relevant kind of thinking, just as hardworking and intellectually honest and so on. So the idea is that, you know, 
Disagreement can make it irrational for you to maintain your beliefs when the people who disagree with you seem just as likely as you are to get the matter right. So that's, that's conciliationism. And I've been writing papers in defense of conciliationism for a few years. And somehow, not everyone is convinced. Uh-huh. <laughs> and it's worse than that. Um, some of the people who disagree with me are people that I know are at least as smart and well-informed and honest and hardworking and so on as I am. And so, uh, and as some of these people have obviously enjoyed pointing out, uh, my own view tells me that I shouldn't believe my view. So, uh, okay, that's, that's actually not a direct answer to your question. You asked me whether I do believe my views. And the truth is, I'm not highly confident in my views. And the reason really is the disagreement of other philosophers whom I have a lot of epistemic respect for. Uh, so, you know, I'm inclined to, let's say, reject the claim that ideally rational beliefs should all form a consistent set. But I know very smart philosophers on the other side of that, and I really am less confident because of that. But um, I probably am more confident than my view on disagreement tells me that I should be. I certainly feel like I'm believing my views when I'm writing or arguing, but at the end of the day, I wouldn't bet the house on their correctness. So there's a kind of a, uh, at least from the subjective point of view, vacillation when I'm really in it, I kind of feel like I'm believing it, but when I can step back, I don't feel nearly as much like I'm believing it. I suspect maybe the best description would say that I do have a special doxastic attitude toward my views, but it's not really belief. Or at least that that's that's the way I'm like in my more rational moments. Okay, enough epistemology, serious questions. We're going to go on to question four, which is more offbeat. The question is, do you ever have philosophical dreams? Yeah. I mean, I suppose like pretty much everybody who has our job. I have dreams about teaching philosophy. Mm -hmm. And some of those aren't really about philosophy. They're about, you know, trying to find my classroom and being late and not remembering what topic I'm supposed to be teaching. But some of them do more involve philosophy. I have dreams fairly frequently when I'm trying to explain things clearly. And typically in my dreams, I'm having trouble focusing my mind on how to lay things out properly. And I, I typically can't remember the content of those dreams afterwards. But there is one, at least one dream that I remember very clearly that, that had, or well, at least I now think of as real philosophical content. And this is actually a dream I had when I was a kid, maybe a teenager. So my mom is from India. And when I was a kid, every once in a while, we would go back to India and stay for a while and visit my relatives, my grandparents, and cousins, and aunts, and uncles. But we didn't go very often. It was very, very expensive. So it was something we did, you know, every few years. And one day I, I was dreaming that I was in India visiting my cousin Feroz. And it occurred to me in the middle of the dream that I can't really be in India. Maybe this is a dream. And I remembered hearing or reading that 
in a dream, if you pinch yourself, it won't hurt. And so I thought, okay, I'll figure this out. I'll pinch myself uh, and figure out whether I'm dreaming. And uh, so I pinched myself and it did not hurt. And I thought to myself, well, actually, only an idiot would pinch themselves so hard it would hurt. So this really doesn't prove anything. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I sometimes think back to that dream when I'm talking to my students about skepticism. And they suggest various empirical tests for skeptical hypotheses. That is a fantastic dream. Excellent. So it's a, that's the perfect dream for a teenage future epistemologist. <laughs> that's excellent. I'm going to ask you uh, one last question. This is another Iris Murdoch-inspired question, beginning with a quote. It's always a significant question to ask about any philosopher, she wrote. What is he afraid of? So what are you afraid of? So I don't, I don't think I'm especially afraid of anything like philosophically sexy, like the meeting with Sif et al., or even death. I mean, I have an ordinary fear of death. I'm like trying hard not to get coronavirus, but it's nothing philosophically deep. And I'm also certainly I'm afraid of ordinary things like racist, authoritarian, nationalist trends in recent politics, the U.S. and other places too. But I don't think those fears are particularly significant for the way I do philosophy. So when I was thinking about this question, I was thinking, well, what what fear do I have um, that actually kind of affect the way I do philosophy? And I think one fear I do have that does affect the way I do philosophy is that I'm probably too afraid of making mistakes, uh, especially publicly. So I really don't enjoy giving talks in philosophy because uh, I'm afraid some mistake will surface. I know that sounds pitiful. I mean, like, what's the worst that can happen, right? And I'm constantly, you know, going on about how we all make mistakes anyway, right? That's, that's all this conciliationism stuff is all about how we, sh- you know, we all make mistakes. And it's not even as if I'm reluctant to raise objections myself at other people's talks, but pitiful or not, it really is true. So uh, I, when I'm writing philosophy, I do spend a lot of time trying hard to think up objections to my views. And that, of course, you know, that can be a good thing. I mean, that's certainly something I tell all my students to try to do, especially the ones who are you know, prone to overconfidence. Uh, but I also think it might be kind of limiting. Uh, I think it would be nice to feel more like, more comfortable in laying out ideas for other people to react to and not worrying so much about whether they're right. That's kind of a, an ideal I have about how philosophy should be done, but it's, it's an ideal that honestly I don't really live up to. Well, that question, what's the worst that can happen, reminds me of my very first day teaching at the University of Pittsburgh, my first job. My then colleague, Richard Gale, before the first graduate seminar I taught, came up and said, remember, Kieran, Ask yourself, what's the worst that can happen? Complete professional humiliation. And I, uh, I always, I always think of that on the first on the first day of class or before giving a talk. I, I remember, that's my mantra that I uh, I can repeat to myself. Thanks to Richard Gale, my my supportive uh, colleague. Anyway, that's that's so reassuring. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Well, David, it's been really great to have you on the podcast. Thanks so much for doing this. It's been really fun to talk to you too. Thank you very much for having me.
David Christensen is a professor of philosophy at Brown University and the author of Putting Logic in Its Place. Thanks for listening to Five Questions. Five Questions.